Hey everybody, welcome to We've Got Ward, a doof media podcast series where we expertly dissect and discuss Ward, Wildbo's return to the world of parahumans. My name is Matt Freeman, and this is Scott Daly. Scott, blink once to say hello to all our listeners. Okay, Matt, first of all, too soon. But also, this is an audio format. I can't blink on a podcast. Who wrote this bit? I'm pretty sure you did, and then you made me read the really insensitive part. This is the weekly podcast where Matt and I eagerly dive into Wildbo's world of, oh my God, Jesus fucking Christ, and alien-based death powers as we analyze and interpret this ongoing web serial. This week, we're covering chapters 10.10 and 10.11. The worst thing ever happens. It's, it's, it's horrible. I love it. Matt, what do you think of these two chapters? Uh, I mean, these are these are great. I think that we're on the same page that like these these affected both of us uh, emotionally um, significantly, and and I am really excited to get into it and and perhaps talk about how that was done and and why it works the way it does. Yeah, I think we're going to spend a lot of time on that this week, and I I am too really looking forward to that conversation. I I, I don't think I've had as visceral a reaction as I did to the first part of chapter 11 in my experience reading this book. And I think, you know, I spent a lot of time thinking about why that was. And I think we've got some interesting things to say about that. At least I hope we do. Um, so I am very much looking forward to this. I like, I like how everything kind of leads up to this, that point. I like how chapter 10 starts with some relatively happy bits, right? It's like a reunion. People are together. We're reminiscing about Brockton Bay times. Um, and then we kind of, that kind of like, protects us mm -hmm. for a little bit before we move into the really really dark stuff um i just think it's 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 well structured and paced and yeah let's uh i feel like if i talk anymore i'm just like putting off getting to the tough part <laughs> so let's yeah let's just do it all right quick announcements first fan art contest number five happy holidays from earth gimmel uh, is underway. Entries are due by Monday, December 17th at midnight Pacific Standard Time. Winners will be revealed on Christmas Day. So please get those submissions in. Yeah, and we got an email last week from someone asking for a clarification on the rules. Um, basically asking, does it have to be people, characters coming from Earth Gimel? Does it have to be that way? Um, no, it doesn't. Um, there is, like, I, I, I came up with the, the, the line... Happy holidays from Earth Gimmel, um, specifically just because I thought it sounded clever. Um, but if you have like like, for example, if you want to have a Christmas card from Amy on Earth Chin, sending it to her sister, which is something that she'd probably totally do. because <laughs> She's clueless. Um, that's fine. So like if it's our, our basic rule is something you know, holidays related in some, maybe some sort of holiday card related or a picture that would go on the front of a holiday card um, and something like that. So yeah, if you want to do characters that are on Shin, if you want to do characters that are on Bet, it's, it's fine. It's just happy holidays from Earth Gimmel was like a distinct yeah. way of expressing that. And most of the characters are on that. Uh, uh, I keep, I keep wanting to say planet, but universe. See, I'm, I'm not sure if, if Amy is um, insensitive enough to do that, but I am sure that Carol is insensitive enough to send out a Christmas card that has like smiling pictures of Amy and Victoria right next to each other. Oh God, she would absolutely yeah. do that. Yeah. Oh God. Um, I'll, I'm scared someone's going to make that yeah, now. Yeah, now I want that. Yeah. All right. The community spotlight section where we read what people wrote from last week's thread. And the discussion question from last week was, in light of the impending wave of anger that's going to sweep over Earth Gimmel, Tattletail elects to do nothing. 
discuss what the novel could be exploring with this choice. When is it ethical to step back from a bad thing you see coming? Um, which I think maybe I added one sentence to this question that didn't need to be there, but uh, <laughs> it, it, that's fine. I'm, I'm, I'm perfectly happy with the idea that we're throwing out some, some ideas and I'm just interested in what kinds of um, responses they get, you know? Yeah, I, I will agree that a lot of the focus on the question this week was on that last sentence, um, which, again, is OK. We kind of want people to think and explore this stuff. So I, I was fine with it. But that is that is what people latched on to. And I think it's because it's kind of like a, a bold declarative statement, right? Yeah, it has implications, certainly. So Hero of Old Iron wonders if Tattletale doesn't deserve a chance to just hang up the cape after having saved the world. Even if capes don't really retire, hasn't she, quote unquote, done enough? Uh, and I like the sentence, uh, death, death should not be the only way for her service to end. <laughs> um, yeah, so th there, there were a lot of sentiments expressed, but I saw a lot along the, along the lines of like, you know, she's she's kind of put in her time. Do we is, is she really obligated to step in just because she sees an opportunity to. Um, and yeah, and so yeah that, that was, that was a, a through line actually. And that to me is kind of the most interesting thing to ponder about this whole situation. Like this idea of responsibility and, and like the ethical requirements to act, right? Like, like how, how do we draw those lines? When is it, when, when has someone done enough? Is it, is there a situation where, because I mean, I don't disagree with Hero of Old Iron that she's done a lot of shit. And like, at what point do you have to say enough's enough? At what point do you have to say you've done your obligation to the world? Right. And and you've you've you did your part. It's time for someone yeah. else to pick up that manual mantle mantle. Or is it always like if you have the power to, to stop something, you are obligated to do it. And And I don't. I don't like talking in extremes like that, but I think it's an interesting question to, to think about. Right. Yeah, I guess I'll just drop up front. Kind of my reaction is the idea that different ethical systems will give different answers to that. And mm -hmm. and I, I think under some ethical systems, um, it's it, you, you kind of are like you kind of never get to set down your burden like you. You're obligated to do the good that you see that you can do and avoid the harm that you see that you can avoid. And that's it. Like there's no, there's no karmic balance to it. It's yeah. It's uh, like you, you would basically cease to be a good person if you stopped doing good things. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, and, and, and I'm not here to s sit down and like declare which ethical system is the right one. Right? right. That's not, that's not, that's not the scope of our podcast, but yeah, I mean, I just, I think it's fun to think about these things and it's fun to kind of explore how the book is not like, concluding on those different ethical systems, but looking into them, because I think this this reading this week's reading in particular, we have um, Victoria and her group, you know, seeing a group of people start to go a certain way and not making the decision to step back. And yes, it's a different situation. It's it's but 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 it it allows us to compare these two choices. Right. Mm. One one person says, I'm going to step back. I'm not going to do anything. I'm going to let this happen. Another group says, no, we have to do something. Just give us time. Give us a certain amount of time and, and we will do this. And and it's 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 an opportunity to compare those things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and another thing to talk about is like, what what does the character think about this? Like. Are they letting themselves down? That, that's one thing we're always interested in is like set aside the like objective different ethical systems and ask what does this particular character feel about their own decision? 
Yeah, that's a good point. Really good point. I think we kind of went off of Hero of Old Iron's answer a little bit. I was kind of responding to several different questions that we haven't actually mentioned yet. So, yeah. Speaking of which, up next, we have Tesserwat, who gives us a very thorough rundown of what a chaotic mess Lisa's young life has been. She triggered at age 14 or 15 and has been bouncing between disasters since then. They make a first argument that Lisa needs to take care of herself. And since she's already run ragged, she needs to tap out of the latest disaster and take some R&R. Then they make a utilitarian argument that, well, the current kerfuffle is probably not that bad. And she's legitimately better off conserving her energy. That's uh, I mean, again, like I think this kind of circles back around to the the tangent we jumped on. Mm -hmm. But that's I mean, I I like that point. I agree that um, that. You owe yourself like sometimes the right thing to do is to recuperate yourself and save your energy for other things. I think that's a fair assessment to make that that is this is this a life, a world ending threat that's happening right now? If it's not, maybe maybe my time is spent is more valuable spent elsewhere. And I think it's okay. Yeah, absolutely. There's there's a few other comments along these lines, but I like this one in particular, this basic basically pointing out like. Um, you know, she's, she's great, but she can't be great all the time. So picking her battles is actually strategic. And this isn't, this isn't like backing down out of cowardice, um, even in her own mind. Right. She's not like afraid, you know, she's, she's just like, I, I'm just not going to get involved with this. And that's a decision. Yeah. Yeah. EXE JPEG, uh, when does movie viewer sees, Lisa's refusal to get involved as suspicious and somewhat uncharacteristic of her. And furthermore, as part of a string of ward era decisions that have been in this poster's words, subtly bad and excessively risky. Uh, And they actually point out like a few instances where they think that Lisa has made some kind of uncharacteristically um, bad decisions. Like, I mean, the, the one that pops into my head is where she just completely miscalculated regarding, um, uh, whether Cradle would try to kill Rain. Um, but uh, this poster also pointed out some other ones. And it's like, well, it would be interesting if, like, this were a bad decision and that Lisa were, like, making bad decisions for some reason, like she's being manipulated maybe. Um, not something that occurred to me, but it, it, interesting to think about. Yeah, that's a little bit uh, Byron's chocolatey there. And not not to say that it's out as outlandish as the OG Byron's chocolate, but it is, it is an interesting thing of maybe there's something, this behavior is a little unusual and maybe there's something going on. Um, yeah, that, that had not occurred to me either, but, um, I don't completely disagree with it. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Perditorian notes that part of the problem is the tattletale likes to be the smartest person in the room, which now means that she doesn't have anything like an equal to fall back on or delegate to. That's an interesting point that like this whole um, this whole idea of like being able to step back and let things happen um, from an ethical or moral standpoint. Is there anyone else in the world that can do what I do? And she's kind of set herself up that no, no, there's not. She's, she's it kind of intentionally maneuvered things that way. Yeah. There's this framing where like, you know, v- Victoria's team is sort of a team of people with different uh, qualities that, that uh, they, they're interdependent and they all have their strong suits, but tattle like the undersiders kind of fall apart without tattletale, right? Like She's their entire like ops and leadership at this point. I mean, we don't know that much about them, honestly. We're we're inferring some, I think. Um, 
but yeah, they're very different kind of organizational principle there. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, so next poster slice of pie emphasizes that Tattletail's power is always on and that she's in constant conflict with it. Something that I think that you and I probably underemphasized in our discussions is that this, the fact that her shard, her shard is a big part of what's wearing her down. Um, and, and also they, they go on to say that it's possible that her shard has effectively undermined her confidence in herself, leading her to make this decision. Yeah, I like that. I like that, uh, that angle on it, that it's not necessarily that she's choosing to do nothing, but that she feels like her choice, like that what she will do will be the wrong decision here, especially I like that a lot, especially given that she's standing at this meeting and like listing off all the things she was wrong about. Right. Mm -hmm. Like I was wrong that uh, March was wasn't or was going to be here. I was wrong that I was wrong about the tone and like the whole kind of situation and and how serious it was so she's like listing all these things i was wrong about and then is like i'm just not going to do anything here so yeah i mean that would be very characteristically tattletale to kind of hide that fear to get involved in indifference in apathy in in a in a active choice to step back yeah i think that's a pretty good read of her character all right now we have roundest frog it's a name I don't think I've seen before. Yeah. Says it's not ethical to stand aside from something bad, but that doesn't mean it's unethical either. You could give up your organs to save, save lives, but deciding not to do that is perfectly reasonable. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree with that. I mean, we, we, we make choices to not sacrifice ourselves to help other people daily, right? And that doesn't make you unethical people. Yeah, th this is kind of the one I was actually thinking about when I said that thing about like, well, it depends on the ethical system because if you go to like, you know, Peter Singer style altruism. It's like, well, actually, you probably <laughs> should give away all the organs that you can do without. And you should probably mm -hmm. give away all the money that you can do without to get, you know, a subsistence level. Because otherwise, what exactly is the justification? Like, it's not really coherent. And it's like, okay, yeah, well, if you if you accept certain premises, then that all makes sense. But like, humans can't actually live that way. Um, I mean, the, the concept of a supererogatory, um, like, like, basically... Uh, praiseworthy but not necessary act is one that, that I think is is being um, uh, kind of kind of gestured at here. Like I, yeah. I, I like that concept where like there are good things that aren't required, and yeah, like that's how humans operate. So it's perfectly fine. Sarah Penguin again frames Tattletail's decision as one of self-preservation. They also point out that practically every move we've seen Tattletail make in the story has been aimed at prevention of conflict escalation, basically. Oh, it's interesting. I, like, I kind of like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they point out her, her interference in Hollow Point, her interference with the Fallen, uh, her interference with March were all sort of like gambits to avoid things blowing up much bigger than they would have. Uh, she wasn't necessarily successful, but uh, it, right. I, I think that it, I think that this is accurate and it's kind of a very interesting frame, especially for the former best friend of the Queen of Escalation. Yeah. And it, I think it, it ties into her exhaustion and her decision at the end. Right. Like if if she's she's been making moves, been playing this really complicated game of chess to stop things from escalating, to keep things from tumbling. And it just hasn't worked like it, she she maybe slowed it a little bit. But but that that snowball is still rolling down the hill at one point you're like okay i can't keep standing in the way of it and getting <laughs> getting smacked around right yeah right so it, it, it makes that decision a lot more understandable yeah i like that interpretation a lot mm -hmm. 
Months for College says Tattletale perceives the situation as beyond her control and believes effort aimed at controlling it would be wasted. Anti-Chris agrees with the sentiment that you're not obligated to stop something that you can't stop. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree with that. I think I think the difficulty here is. Is is there a situation that exists without like precognition where, you know, your actions, you know, 100 percent that your actions will or won't work. And I don't think there is. I mean, we all have to make choices based on what we think we're doing is right. And if we think what we're doing is going to be effective or not. Right. So. And, and this reading, honestly, just kind of pushed me to to reconsider whether I even kind of interpreted what was happening correctly, because they're basically saying like she's not she's not like saying like, oh, whatever, fuck it. I'm not going to get involved like out of spite. She's like, I don't think I can affect the outcome here. So I'm right. not going to waste my energy, which is a different yeah. it's a different thing entirely. Right. Yeah. yeah, it's it's a much different it's a much different in, uh, interpretation than I could do something here, but I choose not yes. to. It's I don't think I can do something here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Jamie, I'll have to go. Go ahead. I have to go back and read the end of the chapter to see if if maybe yeah, that's just a flat out misinterpretation on our part. I didn't, I didn't, I I, I got, I got the feeling that it was like not definitely one or the two, but possibly somewhere in between. You know, like. Like she could maybe do some stuff, but she's not confident enough that it would work. Yeah. Instead of just, I don't think this is going to work. Right. So, well, that's, yeah. that's why I like the self doubt comment where it's like, she yeah. may just be wrong, right? Or she she may be operating from a place of just like exhaustion. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Jay Maniac, on the other hand, says Tattletail won't actually be able to sit this one out despite wanting to. The conflict will expand, possibly rope in somebody she cares about, and then she'll be part of it eventually despite having decided to sit it out. Yeah, I think he's he's probably right there. Um, just because, especially in these two chapters, we kind of see that the scope of this thing is going to be bigger than anyone thought about. I mean, we we specifically set up angry angry villains in last week's reading, and now we're very specifically setting up a bunch of angry heroes in this week's reading. And we have these two pissed off forces that seem to be moving towards conflict with each other. And it, that that doesn't end, that doesn't that's just not like a fight, and then it kind of deescalates. Right? right. That's gonna it's going to spiral into something. So I think that's probably safe that, that even if she decides to let this particular thing happen, she's going to get rolled into it eventually. Yeah. Yep. Megafire, uh, compares Tattletail to Contessa, who has apparently retired to take care of herself after spending decades trying to save the world. So yeah, like, like Contessa worked really hard. She's taken some time off. Maybe it's Tattletail's time. Yeah. Right. It goes, it's in line with the idea that like, Hey, hasn't she done enough? Which, Mm-hmm. Again, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Wanson has a fascinating speculation as to why Tattletail's power is silent toward the end of the chapter, uh, that it doesn't want her to stop the rampage that's coming. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. So like the idea being like her power is pretty interjecty, but toward the end of the chapter, you'd think it would be you'd think it would be doing its normal thing of being like, uh, you know, that guy uh, is, is his weakness is this. Use that to needle him to get him, you know, to to lower his defenses and or, or whatever. But instead, it's just there's no power interruptions. Yeah. Um, which, and yeah. I mean, I think that's in line with one of the things she says is when she's exploring about how tired she is. One of the things she says is how she's exhausted and she's tired of always wrestling and fighting with her power. So to me, the act of saying I'm going to do nothing is kind of the act of her. Uh, choosing to swim downstream with her shard rather than swim against it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, makes sense. 
Lost Man 138 reminds us that Lisa wants the cops and robber system. It was her damn idea, and that's where she thrives. She hates dealing with real violence and craziness and having people shoot her in the legs. She sees the villains all getting ready to leave the cops and robbers behind and folds. I, I like that. So yeah, yeah. Like she functions best under a game that perpetuates a system that she benefits, right? That, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And the idea that we're leaving the system behind is almost like a sign that her effectiveness in this new world will be diminished. And so she just decides not to even play the game right. anymore. And I mean, she like, she enjoyed being a Cape back when it really was cops and robbers. And yeah. then didn't really, when she had Jack slash cutting her face open. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's also probably, uh, yeah, I mean, definitely strikes me that like, who else do we know who wishes things could go back to the cops and robbers uh, framework? Um, I'm thinking of our protagonist, of course. So all these ways yeah. in which these two women are similar, uh, but they just can't get along. Yeah. Yeah. And finally, Cal Subalu V2 offers an interesting angle that Tattletail's choice is an active one. She actually thinks that it will be better in the end for the villains to rampage, prompting the heroes to band together and become empowered by the public. And I'm going to quote here, rioting supervillains is probably really bad, but it's also exactly the sort of opportunity that a budding organization like Breakthrough needs in order to entrench itself in hero culture. So the idea there is she's like, not only does she not think she could steer this thing, but she's kind of okay with it going the direction it's going maybe hmm. yeah yeah it, hmm. it's interesting how i'm there there were like three or four different n- not just like reactions but like interpretations of what's going on in tattletale's head and I'm not even sure which one is right anymore i know i definitely walked away with one um more on the end of like she she was exhausted and just figured her energy was better spent spent elsewhere but some of these definitely made me think yeah and i and i think um i think you know her desire to obfuscate a lot of times is what is what blends to all these different readings right she's never quite even when we're in her head or or in a third person view of her we we don't necessarily even get you know, the full picture of what she's thinking. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think that's a, that's a result of, of who she is that we have so many different interpretations of the same event. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and, and I don't think any of them are like wrong. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, they're all interesting. And I think kind of, you know, cherry picking bits of each of them lead to a, a more complex, better understanding of Tattletale as a person that I, and I, and I like it a lot. So yeah. these were a lot of great answers. I really enjoyed reading through them. Yeah, me too. All right, let's get on into these um, fantastically horrible chapters. Oh, God, here we go. So 10.10. Blurg, Crystal says, <laughs> foreshadowingly. This episode title right there, Blurg. <laughs> so Victoria uh, gives Crystal an update on the latter half of Arc 7 and all of Arcs 8 and 9 and 10 up to this point. <laughs> uh, Crystal left in Torch 7.7. Uh, I think, or at least that was the last time we saw her. It's, I think it's funny because it's not, it's like not really a very good catch up conversation at all in the sense that it doesn't really convey details to Crystal, but it serves as a really good reminder to the reader of everything Breakthrough has been up to, kind of a little cliff notes. Um, 
and 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 crystal is also able to remind us of like how things have changed in in our pretty short time saying things like hey half of the team didn't even have names before and and now you've had this tv appearance uh there's something involving a prison uh, which sounds ominous and <laughs> amy took over a planet apparently what so yeah yeah, you're absolutely right that it's functionally, uh, functionally a great little reminder catch-up section. Characters, you know, in stories relate things to other characters all the time, right? We have moments where a, a character comes back from a long way or we need a new character and we have to have, like, time to catch other person up on thing. And, you know, you can make choices in that. You can, like, do... And then we told them everything that happened and move on. Or you can, like explain and have a person kind of tell the story. I think Wildbo does like a mix of those two things here where he sort of summarizes, but st- sort of doesn't like you said. And, and I think the best part of the, this technique that is used here is that he uses crystal as like a way of reestablishing the absurdity of the amount of shit that, the, that our team has gone through. Like the, like you just pointed out, like all these ridiculous events, like they went on TV, we fought lung goddess. We destroyed a prison. Amy became the leader of a whole universe. Like it's, it's this astronomical list of stuff and crystals reactions help kind of cement that for us and, and reframe our reference because we've been with this team so long that it doesn't seem that unusual that they were going through all this stuff, but mm-hmm. we use an outside character to reframe that and, and how it's done here is so great because it's more than just like an incredulous you did what it, it like wildbo has her channel the wizard of oz like you sound like it was a dream it was a place and this guy was there and her and him they were all there but they couldn't have been on tm like first of all that's like that's like perfect crystal and i love her like this so it's her her energy and her sense of humor here just works yeah but yeah like i said it establishes like the things that you and your team have been through recently have been so fucking wild that when you tell it to someone who hasn't been around, it sounds like they're dreaming or making it up or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. It it kind of reminds me of how we, I think we provisionally called like the end of arc nine, like the end of one of the books of ward um, Mm -hmm. because it, it wrapped up this major, this major plot thread with, with goddess and this has the feeling of like we're touching base with a character that we haven't seen in a while and we're um, recapping the story up to this point, which which does feel like something that you do at the beginning. I mean, I admit this is pretty deep into Arc 10 now, but something that you do toward the beginning of like the new book, right, of, of a story. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's a moment where Sveta interjects with something. Crystal replies, no, no, you're fine. You can butt in all you like. You're as good as family. Yeah, this is an adorable little moment where Crystal matches Victoria's dad, like almost beat for beat. Um, This is the second time it's been used. And it's been a while since you and I have specifically talked about the concept of three beats. And I don't want to, you know, re go through that entire explanation. But here's what I'll say. Watch for the third beat of this. Watch for this to happen again, but don't watch for it to be just like the other two. Watch for it to upend, change, or expand upon the the thing that was created in those first two beats. So um, we see this again a third time, maybe a little different. Yeah, yeah. Also, something that that jumps out to me is that uh, uh, Victoria's dad offered this from like a place of wanting to include her and make her feel included. Uh, Crystal here, I don't even think she's like 
thinking about it. She's she's just like trying. She's just being nice and being genuine. Yeah. In both cases, though, Sveta's reaction is to get in the first case, like kind of flustered. And in the, in the second case, she just like blinks and doesn't really yeah. respond. And like she, she doesn't like smile. She doesn't say like, oh, thank you. That's that's such a sweet thing to say. Like it 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 kind of hits her in a way that is not necessarily like a purely positive thing, even though obviously those two people meant it to be positive. Um, just not. Yeah, some, that's just, an interesting take. Something that, that jumps out to me after seeing the second beat of this is kind of the way in which it um, the, the way in which Feta responds to it, I think, is is important to notice. Yeah. And, and they're like the cool thing is, I think this and I'm not saying this is going to be a three beat. It might not. Um, I'm just saying you see patterns and you you search for those patterns. And the way the third beat of this could upend the meaning could be a, a exact reversal of it where someone says you're not welcome here. You're not family. Or it could be um, some, something along those lines. Right. Mm-hmm. Like there's a lot of different ways you could go with this. And I think it's interesting and i'm i'm very into exploring where this goes yeah yeah me too uh so all this catch-up that's happening is in the midst of uh weld putting the moves on sveta yeah and it's so wonderful they're like we don't see any of the hesitation that we saw through tattletale's eyes or when they first met we're just they're with each other again they're comfortable they're just genuinely enjoying each other's company and and i'm scared i'm scared mm-hmm. <laughs> it's too it's too good they're too happy oh god yeah yeah, it, it, I mean, it was pretty adorable how well is like basically not paying attention to anything else that's happening because he's yeah. just like just want to get he's my just girl. happy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so just some some you know interactions. Fought teacher, fought goddess. I have a hundred texts from from Aunt Carol, who was no doubt trying to see if she could reach me and use me to steer you back on course. No comment. I said, and twenty texts from your dad, who was interpreting Auntie C's actions or crisis managing. Oh, Victoria's <laughs> parents make me want to die. I I try really hard, Matt, to look at Carol through a, a lens of objectivity and fairness, but she's she's she makes it so hard. Yeah. She makes it so hard. Right. Well, like just for some reason I was like completely triggered by this like idea of of parents like bugging someone's friends to try to or I mean admittedly she's a she's a cousin, but like it's so that to me, this is one of the more like obviously boundary crossing things where it's like Victoria's not listening to me. I'm going to I'm going to harass her cousin and then try to get her on my side. It's like, no, yeah. that's that's some horse shit right there. Yeah, I don't think my family listens to this podcast. <laughs> my parents do that to me through my sisters <laughs> all the time. Yeah, if my parents want to tell me something. And avoid the awkward situation. They'll go through my sisters and it drives me crazy. So yeah, this is, this, I hate it. I hate it. Yeah. Yeah. It's close to home. Um, so Vista is apparently kind of, you know, off in the distance saying hi to her dad because she has to talk to her parents separately. Uh, and then she leaves him and joins uh, the group at the first opportunity. Um, well, first actually she goes to talk to a mysterious duo. Uh, we, we later learned that her parents are going to make her decide who she's going home with, like now, right after coming home from a war. Yeah. The parents in this fucking universe, Matt, I swear to God. Yeah. 
Remember when we were all, is Danny a bad parent? And we were having this really like yeah. tough, like moral and yeah. and analytical dilemma of, of seeing, you know, it was, is Danny yeah. bad or yeah. not? He didn't handle his wife's death as well as he could have. Yeah, <laughs> he's a fucking saint compared to some of these people. I mean, they, they're like arguing, like I, I love the little beat, like they argue over who saw her last or who saw her for more time. It's like this petty bullshit. Um, and... And like, he's not even happy to see her here. We'd like, it sucked to see that her dad was showing so very little joy at seeing her though. Um, and, and that's, that sucks. Yeah. That sucks. And we know, like, I think Vista has, has always had a complex relationship with her parents, right? Like, I think I remember one of her echidna clones, like stated immediately that she's, she was going to go kill her family or her parents or something. So like her, her feelings with these people are complicated and, and it, it, she just see, like parents, God, yeah. parents. I know. All right, let's let's try to move past this, Scott. Let's try yep. to enjoy the rest of this chapter. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so a young man who reminds Victoria of Browbeat, uh, described as sturdy, solid, uh, and with a lady friend in elegant style approach, uh, it's Theo and Ava. <gasps> I wasn't uh, expecting it this early. Yeah, I know. Amusingly, Vista accidentally blows their secret identities. Yeah, so... Yeah. So Theo's, he's swole now, but he's much uh-huh. bigger. He got big. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Someone um, said to me on Twitter that like the new nickname for, for big Theo is Swolem. <laughs> and well, um, I love that to death. So uh-huh. let's make that official. We've got board canon now. That's, okay. I, I dub it. It's done. All right. Uh, I love it. Love Find it so replace much. Replace that in the document. Done. All right. <laughs> so, um, Speaking of the secret identities, though, I think it's interesting that we've seen this kind of thing multiple times throughout the story. And I think one of them was just like, well, though admitted to us like, oh, no, I just I just accidentally used the wrong name there. But <laughs> but I, I think the point is, like, we've been talking a lot about how um, the game is going away. Right. And like, I feel like costumed identities, like having a superhero identity and a civilian identity is part of that game. And I think like this, seeing these little bits and pieces of people like, like being a lot more lax with, uh, hiding identities and using different names to me could be illustrative of the, the kind of dissolving of that central game of capedom. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. It, it's the, the fact that, that these people are, are introduced here basically is, implying a lot about the way that these people have like perceived the status quo because right. they're just like they they approach this crowd like like vista kind of beckons them over and and like if if the status quo were like back at the beginning of worm or whatever this interaction just like probably wouldn't have happened because they're yeah. like different hero teams they they would they would maybe like look at each other from a distance and be like yeah i don't want to like create a faux pas so i'm not going to go over there but Right now, they're just like, hey, we're all we're all heroes. It's fine. Yeah. And, and some of them are costumed and some of them aren't. And they go through names like we meet Theo. And then he says, you might you probably haven't heard of me. I'm I'm Golem. So yeah. it's just like they're just like using these names, you know, interchangeably in public. And and it just it doesn't it just doesn't seem as a, a big deal anymore. We're yeah. just so much more lax about it now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so speaking of the uh, Chicago Wards. It's evident that uh, they, or at least Ava, have a chip on their shoulder about having been Weaver's teammates uh, and also having been the stars of the infamous New Delhi video. 
Yeah, I really like this little detail. It really, it must be tough to be mostly remembered as those people were that were around Taylor when she did all those things. Yeah, like not only do you not get valued like for your own contribution to something, but you're connected to the person who did that scary thing. Um, and it doesn't help your image very well. Like I think the, the, the phrase that Missy uses here is damned by association, um, which is, which is really fitting. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the the part of this that I do really like, though, is is while Ava's going through this whole thing, Golem is uh, silent through all her ranting like he doesn't he doesn't pipe in to contradict or to back her up. He's just kind of just chilling. And I I remember like I know Golem had like a thing for Cuff back in the day. Right. And there's the, I think the text here is being kind of coy as to whether or not they're together um it doesn't really say anything specific about that but i i think i think his his silence here s- says something right i think he on the one hand he was closest to taylor out of everyone in the group like they had a, a connection through their incessant training um so he's probably not gonna like completely uh completely join in to with ava's exasperation but if they are romantic in some way he's also not going to like publicly contradict her either and be like no actually um it wasn't that bad or anything like that yeah um which is interesting because it makes me think and it makes you wonder about golem and his his purpose in the story like i i i I get the feeling that he's not just like this is not these two chapters aren't just a cameo and then he's gonna just like to fade to the background again um he he could serve as one of the devices that could have our characters broach the topic of Kepri because he's one of the people that that knew Taylor really well, mm-hmm. uh, at least through part of her uh, a key part of her life. Um, a lot of the characters have have spent a lot of time kind of avoiding or talking around what Taylor did. But here's a character that knew her really well um, and and brings an opportunity to for our, 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 our Brockton Bay reunion to kind of broach these topics with each other. Yeah, for a story where the theme is is sort of healing from trauma, it does seem like at some point there's going to be there's going to need to be a little bit more um, kind of on the nose discussion of it. I mean, they they kind of mentioned some of it on the on the news broadcast, but yeah, that was not like a that was not capes discussing it amongst themselves and trying to sort yeah. it out. You know, um, yeah, I mean, like they, no one has, I don't think anyone has like explicitly like talked about the experience of being controlled by taylor right yeah. like i don't think that's something we've seen amongst uh, any of our main characters and i think that's something that our characters are gonna have to process at some point yeah yeah probably but yeah i, I felt like it was authentic that golem didn't really jump on the bandwagon of complaining yeah. about taylor and and I, absolutely I, from what i remember of cuff she like is exactly the kind of person who would have a chip on her shoulder just in general so yeah so that, i agree that, that felt right too like a like a metal chip. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> um, so Vista, speaking of, you know, future Cape conversations, brings up the idea of trying to scrounge up a Brockton Bay Cape reunion. Um, and this prompts Victoria to bring up Tattletail. Yeah. And, and before we talk about Tattletail, I want to kind of zoom in on one of the things that Missy says here, because I think it supports what we were just talking about. Um, she likes getting together with Brockton Bay people. She enjoys it and seeks it out because it feels like I'm putting a puzzle back together. She says everyone always has questions they never got to get answers to, you know, and and, and that's I think this is what kind of led me down this road of thinking as Golem as this this way to broach Kepri. We have all these Brockton Bay characters kind of slowly starting to 
orbit around each other again. And all of these people have questions they need answering. All of these people are are working towards understanding the things that happened to them. How did we get here? Why? What happened? Like, what happened to our city? How did how did we start at this one place and end here now? And and so I'm, I'm looking at this reunion and I'm not saying it's going to be like a formal reunion or anything, but this this idea that all these Brockton Bay characters are going to be coming together or being closer together as a way of, you know, processing those events together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also, you know, I, I, I think that there's a chance that Victoria, I mean, we know Victoria does not have like a correct, accurate understanding of what the undersiders were and did and who, who was making what decisions. Right. Yeah. So, so, I, and that's been portrayed to us very clearly that like she has her impression and it's incorrect. Yeah. The text has been very clear with that. So I feel like the fact that that was set up, implies that maybe at some point she's going to get corrected on that and that's going to change her impression of, of various characters um looking at you telltale yeah i think that's a, a fair guess yeah yeah um so but yeah for let's reason, uh let's talk to tattletale yeah let's, <laughs> let's, talk talk about, tattletale. let's talk tattletale so for some reason i pulled out like a page of, of text so i'm not gonna read all of it but it's really good that's why you pulled it out yeah um that's that's true actually i was like well i can't not pull it all out <laughs> um but there's so so basically uh, Vista talks about offering her hand in friendship to Tattletail, and Tattletail went straight for the jugular, um, and and said she's uh, she seems happy being a villain, same type as Shadowstalker, I think. And Victoria's reaction to this, I'm probably just going to read the whole thing, but on the surface, I'd known Shadowstalker briefly, and she had been kind of nice to be around when she'd had a reason to be nice. I could believe that Tattletail was the same, but I knew just how shitty they could be when upset. T- uh, Shadowstalker broke faces, and Tattletail destroyed psyches. Shadowstalker stuck relentlessly to a path, and as shitty as she was at her core, however easily or excellently she could be a villain, she valued being a vigilante type. And from what I knew about her, that that wouldn't change, however she was tempted. Being a vigilante served her ends, it served her ego, and it validated her to her core. Tattletale had helped the city, and in some twisted world where the chips had fallen down differently, she could have been a hero. There was a distinction, even, that she cared about shit, that wasn't herself a lot more than Shadowstalker ever had. But being a villain served her ends, it served her ego, and it validated her to her core. So, <laughs> I, I love this. Uh-huh. Here's what I love about this. And, and words, words mean things. Uh-huh. So, and, and the word usage means things. So we start out this statement where, you know, Vista makes this comparison that, that she's the same type as Shadowstalker, which I think... Our understanding of Tattletale as readers of the story immediately say, well, that's not that fair. Um, I, I, I don't think those are very sim- I don't think they're very similar people in their motivation or their general attitude towards the world. Um, but then we have Victoria like ponder this for a minute. And she says before this, you didn't pull that part, but she's like, I really want to sit down with with Vista and like exchange notes and have like a long in-depth dive into this. And maybe it'll help me understand Tattletale a little more. And then she says, but on the surface right now, while I'm here in, in these moments, I can maybe come to a conclusion. And then we have the, the, the double beat of the use of the word core. And so we have, we have the word her analyzing at the surface level, right? She specifically says, I'm just going to analyze at the surface level. And then she finished with these, with, with deciding a, a fundamental truth of them 
at their core. You know, so we have surface and core. These words, uh-huh. these, these words are specific, and it seems like they're chosen to specifically contrast in that way, right? Like, yeah. she she was just going to do a surface level read, and now suddenly it's no, I'm I like at their core, uh, they're the same. Yeah, yeah, it's the same. Yeah, I mean, I think this is kind of a Victoria thing, actually, to to look at the people who have who have wronged her, the people who are villains, the people who she has good reason to believe are, are like not on her side or, 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 or very different from her. Mm-hmm. And, and to basically say like, well, I mean, they must just be bad people deep down. Otherwise they would be good. <laughs> I mean, maybe I'm not being entirely fair with that statement, but like, and I think maybe when she's at her more like philosophical and, and distanced, she's not, She's not that extreme about it, but there's definitely, I mean, it's a very human tendency. I see it in my kids a lot. Like they're at that developmental age where they want to say, is this, is that a good guy or a bad guy when they're, when they're watching movies or whatever, good guys and bad guys, ontologically fundamental categories for them. You, you, there's no, they do not appreciate the moral ambiguity of of the parahumans universe for example <laughs> they want there to be good guys and bad guys and and i think that's just like a natural human way of thinking and i think victoria does yeah. slip into that sometimes yeah and and i mean the thing that like the more you inspect this the more you see her kind of doing it because like there are moments in this whole internal speech to herself where she seems to be like trying to cut tattletale some slack right like she says this this like this thing there was a distinction even that she cared about shit that wasn't herself a lot more than Shadowstalker ever had she admits that this is true she admits that that Shadowstalker at her core is a shitty person and 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 as a distinction Tattletale cares about other people more that's absolutely true but but and then she matches her and, and then the, the wording matches her beat for beat, like serves her ends. It serves her ego and it validated her to her core. Like she, she goes out of her way to, to give Tattletale this credit and then almost by the, the, the word matching there retracts it. Right. Like it's mm-hmm. like these two people, she's not the same. She's not she's not shitty to her core like like Shadowstalker is. But. Yeah, she is. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like, like, it's just it's just like I, she just isn't able to think clearly when it comes to this person. And even when she tries, she kind of like she extends it out there a little but then pulls it back real quick. Yeah. And right. Well, we haven't talked about the hero villain labels and, and how kind of complicated and tricky they are for a while. Yeah. But but like it almost seems like some sleight of hand here where she's like be, being a villain validates her to her core. It's like, well, you mean wearing the villain hat and the cops and robbers game because that yeah, means yeah. almost nothing like she 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 does very similar things to what you do victoria she just does them a little bit more um differently i mean know? there's like there's like drugs and, and guns and stuff too right and, and and that's true <laughs> but 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 like in her mind she's keeping the drugs and guns to like the the minimum level possible and and sort of yeah, it's corrupt. I'm not I'm not like defending it like mm-hmm. but I'm defending it to the extent of saying um, at least Tattletale believes that she's taking care of things better than they would be without her. Yeah. So but before we move on for this, I have one more question, because obviously I, I disagree that Shadowstalker and Tattletale are, are fundamentally, you know, similar types of people. But I also think the phrase being a villain served her ends it served her ego and it validated her to her core 
I don't necessarily think that's an inaccurate statement to say about Tattletale, right? Like, mm-hmm. I, 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 I think it does serve her ends. It, it, does, she, it does serve her ego. I mean, that's a little unfair. Like, it's not necessarily her ego. It's like her, de- her desire, mm-hmm. um, and it does validate her on some level. These are true statements. I think, I think where the 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 thing breaks down is when you start comparing these two people that are are very very different. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I agree that like. There, there is a interpretation of this that is that is accurate, but I don't know if it, if that interpretation really reflects what's going on in Victoria's head. That makes sense. Yeah, I can see what you're saying. Yeah. Okay. So, um, Weldon and and uh, Sveta uh, depart to go home together. Yeah, and and Missy's like, "Hey, you guys want to get coffee?" And they're like, "Nah, fam. Yeah, we want to go home and s- squish." Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I like that it's Vista who asks that and everyone else yeah. is like, no, 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 yeah. no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so Theo then thanks Victoria for brutally beating a member of Empire 88, an action which apparently helped Theo realize that he didn't like the gang he was raised in. Interesting to see Glory Girl's violent excesses rendered in a positive light here. Oh, yeah. I, I love this new kind of wrinkle thrown into the mix. Like the, the, throughout the course of this story, Victoria has been going through a lot. But one of the most like constant, unwavering ideas in her head was this idea that she wasn't a very good person before everything went down with Amy in the hospital. That this, this idea that it in looking in the past and reflecting on the things that she did, she believed that she was too rough, too violent, too angry. She went too far. And here we have someone coming and going, well, no, actually that what you did there helped me. What you did there saved me. And, and it was part of a long chain that led me to where I am now. And, and I'm not like saying that, this is going to be now as cut and dry as as oh, Victoria was completely justified in all the going too far that she did when she was when she was glory girl. I don't I don't think that's what this is saying, but I think it's adding nuance to the whole thing. Right. Nuance that I think Victoria is going to have to wrestle with. We, we've talked about this idea that Victoria is really, really hard on herself. She blames Amy for what happened to her. She blames Tattletale for what happened to her. But she also really, really blames herself. And perhaps seeing that things are more complicated and more more complex and less cut and dry than just I was too violent and therefore everything I did had no value. Um, it, it will will change things. It, it also had some good. Yes, you did bad things. Yes, you went a little too far. Yes, you hurt some people a little too much. But um, you, you, there was good that came from it. And, and maybe that's a, a path to help her kind of forgive herself for that past. Yeah, it can definitely, I think, be healing for her to have some different perspective on things, which is what, yeah. which is what you know, Golem is, is providing here. He's all he's really saying is like, you know, from a certain point of view, you 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 did you did some good in ways that you yeah. didn't notice. So, yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I pulled this out. Uh, yeah, I guess I'll read it first. So um, Crystal says. I'm starting to think you've got a brute thing going on, Victoria, because you have run-ins with everyone and crashed through everything. Everything. Uh, So on this show, we always value the perspectives of other characters on our protagonist. And I think this is interesting because I really can't tell if Crystal is like just needling her cousin here and trying to be funny, or if she actually thinks that it's accurate that Victoria has run-ins with everyone and crashes through everything. Yeah, I mean, I... (sighs) 
It's a cop out, but I think it's both. I mean, I think I think she's absolutely saying it to needle her cousin. Like that has been the common thread throughout their entire interactions throughout the entire this entire first part of the chapter. Right. Like she's pushing her and bugging her cousin because she's happy to see her. And they're like they're playing off each other. And there's a lot of playful jabs. And there's one point where she goes to like elbow her and Crystal blocks it with the force field because she's elbowed her like three times before. And it's wonderful. So I think this is a continuation of that idea that she's just trying to bug her cousin and give her a hard time and have some fun. But that doesn't mean that she doesn't believe it. Right. That doesn't yeah. mean that it's not like that in her mind, it's not entirely accurate. And 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 if you look at like her perspective of all the things that Victoria has gone through in the time she's been gone, it certainly seems like she just, you know, crashes into and through everyone. It's like, yeah, um, we had to crash onto this TV set because someone was going to say something bad about us. So we just had to barrel through that. And then we barreled through the prison and then we barreled through goddess and, and oh yeah, lung too. Like it, I, I, I think, I think that she on some level f- believes it, uh, even though she's just saying it to get a rise out of her sister or her uh, cousin rather. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly describes glory girl. I mean, everything she does in, in worm is smashing through things. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's funny because it isn't the, like, I think this is once again, like protagonist bias because, because Victoria is always thinking about like the warrior monk and, and moderating her actions with like yeah. complicated heuristics. It's like, no, 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 she's, she's not like that. She, she thinks things through and she, she only enters combat like very carefully and it's like, but when you zoom out and you look at the 5,000 foot view as, you know, as she's describing, as she's giving the cliffs notes here, it's like, yeah, she has kind of continually injected herself into the middle of these horrible situations. Yeah. So Crystal and does have a point. And, and she continues to do it throughout these chapters. Yeah. I mean, like yeah. Crystal doesn't see the three paragraphs of introspection Victoria went through before she decided to charge into that fight. Right. Like she, she, she misses out on that. Um, yeah. But so, yeah, I, I could see, I could see reaching that conclusion. Yeah. It, interesting. Interesting. Victoria does her justification before getting into the situation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so Kinsey uh, then calls Victoria on the phone to make her aware that Tattletail was watching, which we saw from the previous chapter. Yeah. Uh, and also to inform her that the dead bodies of some heroes uh, from her hero tracking list have been found. There's some discussion of the upcoming villain meeting, which uh, they've actually already, which which we've already witnessed from Tattletale's perspective. Um, so it'd be an interesting opportunity to talk about uh, some some different things that Ward is doing, that is, as Ward has been doing lately, uh, that I don't think we're done much, if at all, in, in, uh, in Worm and not up up to this point either in, in ward where we're, we've seen the future relative to victoria's storyline both in the valkyrie interlude and in the tattletale interlude yeah i i i think that's absolutely correct that is that the interludes are much less you know moored to the timeline as they have been in in you know previous arcs and and previous books as well mm-hmm. um and and i think this is an opportunity to talk about that device, right? To talk about the decision to do that. We had this tattletale interlude that carried all the way through the, uh, the villain meeting that is kind of the, the ticking clock at the end of this week's reading. So that's, that's 
two chapters in the past, quote unquote, that we have to go through. So why why do it that way? Right. Like, I think that's one of the things we try to do here is every time we see a decision made like this, the first question is, well, why did why do we do that? What what benefit did that have to the story? Mm-hmm. And I think that the quickest and most obvious answer is our old pal dramatic irony. Right. Yeah. Uh, we we know exactly how that meeting goes and we know from Tattletale's perspective, what's going to happen next. So as the heroes scramble to deal with these events and 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 their stuff leading up to that villain meeting, um, their viewpoint on the state of things is highlighted more, right? Mm-hmm. Like because because we have an understanding of from already from the villain's perspective what the state of the world is. That there's a large group of villains and they think the game is over and they think the heroes are consolidating and we 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 got a riot. Um, so when we see the heroes like talking about like their side of things, because we've already seen it and because of that dramatic irony, it allows us to, to place more emphasis on that than it normally would have. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, this week's reading ends on a hero meeting that almost specifically parallels the villain one. And I think going through that villain one first and, and Tattletale's choice in that meeting serves to emphasize the significance of what happens in this meeting, whereas doing them um, in in a different order might not have. Yeah, 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 right. I, I think, you know, it, it's all about the order in which you receive the information kind of contextually impacts how you receive the later information, right? Right, right. So, yeah, that that's... I, I, I was also, like, there's an element of... Um, I don't know if ticking clock is quite the right concept that I'm reaching for here, but like the Valkyrie interlude was like one week. It basically went one week into the future from whatever point that was. Mm-hmm. This Tattletale conversation, Tattletale interlude went one day into the future from wherever that was. Like, I'm wondering if these are, if these aren't all sort of like pointing at some point in the near future where a lot of things come to a head at the same time. Like, I admit that that argument would make more sense if we could say like, Valkyrie, like based on the schedule, Valkyrie's going to return like tomorrow. Uh, but, yeah. but, uh, as it is, I just kind of noticed like these are all, they're all just peaking just a little bit into the future. And I'm like, well, are, are we hinting that something big is coming? I think that's a, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I think so. I think we're, yeah, we're moving towards a, 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 an event, a breaking point. And, um, you know, like you said, this this thing could have been done like we could have seen the hero meeting before the villain meeting right like the, the, yeah. it could have been structured this way there's nothing stopping it from doing that but i think the idea that the villains have like cuz cuz the whole setup here is kind of that the villains have realized that the game the quote unquote game is over and they've realized that before the heroes have done mm-hmm. um so so relaying that information to the readers in that order, I think emphasizes that, right? Yeah. Like that, that the heroes, we, we have this hero meeting and they're still kind of talking about, you know, controlling things and not be, and like, they're still kind of that the way this meeting is happening is still kind of instructive and we're jumping ahead a little bit here, but I'm still kind of instruction instructive of the idea of the, the game. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we know that at least this big group of villains that's about to meet, they don't then none of that matters to them anymore so yeah. yeah i mean it's it's all about how how that that isn't reinforcing information yeah. and 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 i think a ticking clock is very fair as well but i think we're we're moving towards a, a, a point yeah we're, we're sketching out kind of the destination right yeah yeah so um 
basically all of the heroes that are present at this little gathering um, want to we basically that they're they're in on this they want to go check out this this murder of heroes even though they just came back from war uh, and I think it speaks not only to the specific characters but to the whole ethos of heroes uh, and how upset this is going to make all the heroes which is basically setting that up for the for you know the next chapter I think yeah I, I completely agree there's like this that we're, we're reinforcing this this built-in idea of camaraderie between heroes that exists in the story that you do something to one of us you've done it to all of us and um we have to go help out no matter what no matter how tired we are no matter how far we've been traveling we have to um and and i think i, I think again that's this enforces why the emotions in the meeting that happens at the end of next chapter work as well as they do because we've taken the time to reinforce like b- through these characters saying we're all going we've taken time to reinforce the fact that everyone cares about this like we might not even know these people very well but it's dead heroes and therefore we care yeah yeah absolutely it's it's creating this this sense of like the the hero team has solidarity the villain team has solidarity even if they're not really teams there's yeah. definitely a feeling of tribes yeah yeah and and as we know, you know, dividing into into tribes on the different poles is a recipe for peace. Uh huh. Yeah, right? it always works really well. Yeah, it's almost as if the two sides are polarizing or something. Uh, yeah, no, I I definitely don't see any connection to that. <laughs> um, yeah. So all the heroes head to the crime scene, which is near Brockton Bay, appropriately the land of the, the land where dreams go to die. <laughs> um, and it's described immediately as a horror scene with people butchered and the bodies are torn into pieces and scattered over the area. Yeah. And so I actually, I'm going to do the thing where I examine a paragraph really closely <laughs> or a good. sentence. It's like right. three sentences or something, but I, cause I actually think the way that this is, is set up is, is kind of brilliant. Um, so we have, they arrive and then they say they arrive to a horror scene people butchered cops standing by and trying to stay warm while the wind whipped aggressively past us some techs were pacing the field planting little yellow flags by each piece of a body and then the lights being almost solely from the cars made the scene an isolated image on a page otherwise painted black and and when i look at the way these sentences are structured it seems like victoria is mentally building up energy to to visualize the scene to us, right? Like we start with, we start with to a horror scene. We define it first. It's a horror scene, but we define it as vaguely as possible. Then she elaborates a little bit. She says people have been butchered, but butchered as we'll learn is not full context as far as the horror that has happened here. And then she cuts elsewhere. Like she goes, so we're leading up to it, but then she like, I, I can't, I can't, do it. I've, I've got to go somewhere else. So she she turns the scene and now we focus on the cops standing by and trying to stay warm. Then we switch to what the wind is doing. The wind is, is whipping aggressively past us. Then we switch to what the techs are doing. They're pacing the field. And then we finally built it up. We finally gathered enough energy and, and like avoided it enough to where we finally have to turn to the thing itself. And so we turn to the the fact that there are pieces of body just everywhere. But even in that, even in the description of the pieces of body, the text is focusing on the little yellow flags, right? It's like the, the pieces of body are, are the passive subject in the sentence. The, the focus is on the text putting the yellow flags there. So it's like even in revealing the scope of the horror that's happening here, 
Victoria's narrative like doesn't want to fully go there. And after it does that, it immediately cuts away again. It immediately cuts back to the lights being almost solely from the cars, making the seem an isolated image on a page. So we go, we kind of work towards the detail. And then as soon as we get there, we cut away again and then move back towards the, an abstract image of everything. It's like, I, I, I didn't want to go there. I had to go there. And as soon as I went there, I cut away again and went somewhere else. And it's, Mm -hmm. it's all here in this one little paragraph. And I just like, I, I love how it feels. I love how it like makes you, understand the horror of it i i just i just love i love the detail in that so much yeah yeah me too i i think i mean i'm basically going to like take this chapter and the next one and sort of like make sure to kind of keep them somewhere that i can use to kind of study almost because they they're they're doing so many things at the same time yeah so 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 the way wildo tends to write uh, point of view characters is is that basically what you are reading is the contents of that character's scope of attention yeah and you move your scope of attention around you're looking at things you're you're then you're then having a reaction your scope of attention flicks to your own reaction and then someone says something and you pay attention to what they're saying this is a close third person um well close first person here actually um and and so everything is through Everything is through the character's um, mind, yeah, in in a way that's very psychologically realistic. But he's not like he's he's doing that, but he's also making sure that you understand what's happening and that the information is revealed to you in like an optimally dramatic fashion. Yeah, um, and like balancing both of those things at the same time, I, I'm kind of in awe actually because you can. You can easily follow a character's attention around and have it just read like chaotic nonsense because human beings usually don't have like the most coherent mental lives. Actually, <laughs> yeah. Like actually, but but doing it in a way where it just like flows in this like in this like seeping dread comes through the page, and um, but w- without violating the 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 rule of like you're following Victoria's thoughts and, and attention and mind and perceptions. Um, I, I'm just, yeah. I mean, we're going to go through kind of, we're going to go through it all now, but I just wanted to kind of like stand back from it and appreciate this chapter and the next chapter for doing what they do. Uh, to, yeah. to my mind, that's my kind of way of understanding what's happening from yeah, my I, point of view. I, I love that because I, I love it. Like, I love that whole idea because they're like human beings don't have establishing shots in their head, right? Like we don't, we don't walk into a building and, and describe the, like, think about, Oh, there's a window over there and there's a door over there and there's a wall here and there's people standing there. Like we, we don't do that. That's not, that's not the way you work, but like books sometimes require that. So you can set the scene for your readers. So the, so the way that this specifically, and, and I think the stories in general are able to still have those establishing kind of descriptions without breaking the rule of the the point of view, I think is is commendable. And 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 how it's done here is the reason why she's setting the scene to me in my interpretation is she's avoiding looking at the thing she doesn't want to look at. Mm-hmm. So she's she's looking elsewhere. She's she's trying to focus on other things as she works her mental energy up to seeing the one thing that is going to truly disturb her. And 
uh, yeah, it just works. It just works so well. Yeah. I think the one thing that's going to come, come through really hard, particularly in the next chapter, is this idea that it's not what she's thinking, it's what she's not thinking. Yeah. yeah. That is, is actually successfully conveyed to us based on how well we know her. Yeah. But we'll get there. And so before we move on, there's also this wonderful other beat of where how she floats over the entire scene. So she's flying over the scene now. Um, it's it's so she won't contaminate the scene, which is absolutely true. It's it's a it's a practical reason to not contaminate the scene. But in the in the language of Victoria, flying is is disconnecting, right? Mm-hmm. Like she's she's said this many times before. When you fly, you kind of disconnect from the world and. I, I, I don't know if that's like a conscious decision on her part here. In fact, I, I don't think it is at all, but I think it's reinforced like once again, how tough this is for her, how, how disturbing this is, um, her, her decision to fly here. Yeah. 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 There's this definitely want to pay attention to the flying in, in this chapter. Yeah. So Victoria now speaks to the cop who's in charge and this cop expresses that the cops are not equipped to deal with <laughs> costume on costume crime in her words. Uh, so basically this case is not going to be solved if Vicky and her crew can't make headway. Yeah. Which is, um, putting a lot of pressure on our, our characters, but also, I mean, once again, establishing the fact that this is truly horrifying that the cops are just like, are we can, no, uh-uh. yeah. like there's no part of me is also wondering if the cops aren't like, it's not that they're not equipped. It's that they're like, we don't really care about costume on costume crime. That could, that could be a read. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think. I don't think we see anything definitive about that. But yeah. Like we see like any kind of thing in the text about that, but it, it's, yeah, it just goes with what's happening in the background. But I mean the, the, it seems to me like the, the main cop in charge, cause I think Victoria comments on this is sincere in her. Like when she says like, look, I, I get it. Like I, yeah. I like I get it. Like she seems a little sincere and I think Victoria r- remarks on her sincerity, but yeah, I mean there could be, Something, yeah. something there. She actually seems legitimately kind of fucked up about it later too. So. Yeah. Well, cause it's fucked up. Yeah. Let's, let's get there. So Victoria thinks about these victims, the navigators, uh, and what she knows about the individual members. We have a name that I'm going to just pronounce as nail fairer, uh, probably has some better Norse pronunciation, but, uh, nail fairer is the first that we uh, metaphorically meet in, in her mind. We even learned her trigger event as a victim of human trafficking. Her name is a reference to her past uh, more than a reference to her power. Uh, her power is apparently to turn dead tissue into doors. Yeah, that's a that's a thing, uh-huh. I guess. Yeah. Um, but so I think I think Wild Bill is doing something really clever here because the chapter after this one is going to be this intensely emotional experience. It's going to fuck you up. But we don't know Nailfair. We don't know Slingstone. We don't know Scaffold. We don't really know these people. Not really. And we don't have to fully understand their background in order to empathize with them, especially since that empathy is going to kind of be driven through Victoria and Victoria's experience. But we need something. And and, and in this moment, before we understand the full scope of the horror of the situation, it just reads as a sad backstory for dead characters. We lost these characters. It 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 it. it it goes out of its way to reinforce that these are people who had terrible shit happen to them and they found a way to try to do good despite all this terrible stuff that happened to them. And it's just kind of, well, that's a fucking bummer. But obviously it, it becomes some something so much more in the next chapter. 
Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Don't have anything to add to that. Even that's, that's exactly the function of, of why we're, why we're getting to know them here. Yeah. And, and one of the other things that we're doing here is, is, you know, Victoria is drawing connections between these characters and her and herself and her family. Like she's describing Scaffold's power and she relates it to her Aunt Sarah. She's Aunt Sarah had it as his power. So did Crystal. So had Eric. Me and my mom, not so much. She's drawing those lines between these dead people and her family, especially the one member of her family who has also died. I think that the subtext of this whole thing is like, this could have been us. Like this, this could have happened to people I knew. Like the, the, like it's, it's seriously affecting her and we haven't even gotten to the most horrible part yet. Right. Yeah. No, I, 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 that, that's definitely true. That's one thing the text is, is doing throughout both of these chapters is making sure that we, um, appreciate how Victoria is connected to this without necessarily having her say like, I felt sad about this because I was connected to this. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so we spend a little bit less time on Slingstone and Scaffold relatively. Uh, we learn enough to kind of see them as people though. I think that's fine because Nail Fair is the one we're going to spend more time with. Mm -hmm. Uh, the hero capes then methodically examine the crime scene. They're all upset. Like they're all upset, like in the abstract, like, like they're not having a fun time. But none of them is really letting the horror like get under their skin. Nobody's nobody's freaking out. Nobody's having yeah. like an emotional meltdown. Um, after mentally putting together some details of the attack, like the presence of a large monstrous attacker, Victoria joins Laser Dream to examine Scaffold, whose head has been impaled on a scaffold of his own making. Yeah, these fucked up fuckers certainly have a sense of irony. Hooray. Yeah, artistic. Um, so the text... I think more than once notices like notes that the, that the, that the body parts are red and here it says red and glistening. And honestly, I, I read that and I was like, Hmm, I guess maybe Wellbo made a mistake. Cause I think these bodies have probably been here long enough that the blood wouldn't be like red and glistening anymore. Oh, well, and that was your gone. mistake. That was my mistake. Cause that's a clue that lets our protagonist realize that the giblets are not actually dead. Yeah. I kind of, I don't want to say anything about this, revelation yet because we're going to talk about it a bunch next chapter but this this fucked me up Matt. this fucked me up big time yeah yep so as everyone begins to react to this the text says the woman in charge had to shout at people who were heading to the bushes to throw up because pieces had been strewn so far and wide across the field that there might be some in the bushes i i love that sentence like i love how powerful and matter of fact and just like functional it is like like it's just it just establishes everything you need to know like how like just how far all these pieces are thrown um just how screwed up everyone is like it's it's yeah. perfect it really right. is perfect i love yeah. it and it's not even like at somebody who is heading to the bushes it's at no. people <laughs> yeah. who are heading to the bushes forcing you to imagine like everyone just reacting with such a like like recoiling so dramatically that just like multiple people had to go vomit yeah yeah uh i feel so as this chapter wraps up and th and this is kind of stuff that's going to be set up going into the next chapter but i feel like as this chapter wraps up is a time to kind of air these thoughts i feel like a lot of what's happening um not only in these chapters but maybe even in the whole preceding arc or or so has been establishing red herrings establishing 
possible parties who could have done this because like mm-hmm. you're like oh there's a shovel and a monster was it the case of t3s no there's dismemberment shenanigans was it disjoint inside piece march and the gray twins panacea bonesaw bitter pill mysterious barcode member some tinker copying their power so like we realize how many like body part and biology powers have been have been implicated in in what's happened here yeah yeah and the 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 cool thing about this is i think every single one of these red herrings could have like really interesting narrative consequences for our characters right because like if it's case 53s that means something big for sveta if it's a disjoint and side piece those are the guys that we just let go with that yesterday or whenever that was um i guess it was probably earlier today right i don't know yeah um like there's each one of these has some some potential consequence and how it's going to relate to one of our characters. So like that's the sign of a good red herring that you could like that the, the, the which one it is doesn't become immediately obvious because they all seem to fit um, your story. Yeah. If yeah. if I had to guess uh-huh. the most kind of interesting and resonant one would have something to do with some case 53s involved with this whole thing because like mm-hmm. this arc has has gone out of its way to focus on sveta a little bit and uh and and people that she called family before doing this thing to someone would be something that sveta would have a very very hard time with and that could advance her storyline a little bit but that doesn't mean it's necessarily definitely going to be the one but um it, it, like you can see you can see like that future line of conflict yeah yeah that would fit i agree um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I like the fact that these red herrings have, we've been, we didn't even realize we were seeing red herrings being set up. Right. But, yeah. but I think, I think that's what was happening. And I think that was intentional. Yeah. So we move on into 10.11, which is oh boy. somehow even more harrowing than a chapter where they found out that all the body parts were alive. Oh boy. So the first sentence of this chapter is what we immediately recognize as the old communication protocol that Victoria had to use back when she was a blob. And it takes us a moment to understand that it's Victoria speaking, assisting Nailfarer, and it's a gut punch. Yeah. So I think we've got a lot to say about like this chapter as a whole, and we're going to spend a lot of time kind of diving into the details, into the language here. But before we did all that... I want to just talk about this, this whole thing from a a high level, right? Um, I want to talk about this scene as a whole, and I want to talk about how this scene got me in a way that I'm not sure if any of the terrible things that have happened in these past two books have gotten me before. I was like visibly uncomfortable. Like if if someone was watching me read the story, I was visibly uncomfortable reading through all this. I had to walk away from my computer. I did. I had to get up and leave and like, you know, walk through my thoughts a little bit and then like gird myself and come sit back down and power through the rest of the chapter. And, and you know, I, I am an emotional person. I, I react to stories a lot, but that is not an experience that I'm used to having while reading a book. It just doesn't happen to me very often. So I was immediately interested in, in why, why this particular thing, like there's been so many terrible things that have happened in the story, right? Like there's so many disturbing images and, and, and torturous things that happen to people in this story. Why this one? And I, 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 when, when analyzing it, 
I think the key to all this for me is unsurprisingly, you know, Victoria, our point of view character. And uh, I I, I don't want to say this as like her emotional reaction is more important than the three people that are chopped into pieces and suffering. Like, obviously, that's horrible. But I'm just like Victoria's what Victoria is going through right here elevates this from just, oh, my God, this is horrible to I got to leave the room. Mm -hmm. And 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 I think I think you kind of hinted towards it last chapter that it's not what Victoria is doing here. It's what Victoria is not doing. Um, And what Victoria is not doing in this chapter is the thing that we've seen her do throughout this entire book, this, this introspective think about all the stuff and process through this stuff in her internal monologue. Like she is almost specifically not thinking about things, right? Like she's avoiding as thinking about anything as much as possible. And her thoughts are all kind of focused and mechanical and, and like physical and, and and, pragmatic. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that is such a fundamental kind of like, you know, vocal change between the narrative story that we've read up until this point that it just kind of like it it brings you to a new different kind of level. And as you as you realize it's happening, it goes from, oh, my God, to, uh, oh, 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 God. You know what it reminds like it reminds me of any time where I've been in a emergency situation my thoughts basically go blank and I just do what I need to do. Yeah. And that's like exactly what I like read into the change in the narrative voice here where she's like, like, I don't want to say in shock, but because she's functioning like, like exactly, she's doing exactly what she needs to do, but she's, she's just, she's just setting aside herself entirely, Yeah, you know? And that's that's really poignant. Right. And I think that's part of what really hits hard. Yeah. And and when she does think about herself, it is all kind of physically focused. My voice doesn't sound like mine. Right. It is. She that's as far as she goes. And then she walks it back. Um, She does. She doesn't dive into anything else. Like Victoria never in her internal narrative mentions that this is the code that was used on her when she was in the hospital. Mm-hmm. It is said once in the story, but it's not her that brings it up. It's, it's kind of brought up to her by crystal. Like she never even, she like, she doesn't, it, it's just not there. Like none of that thought process is there. We just don't see it. Cause yeah, she has, she has shut down part of her and, and, and she's like desperately, I think she's like desperately trying to get through this entire sec- section without making this link, without linking her to what this person's going through and and i think the for writing to be able to convey the connection like for 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 people that haven't read worm in a while maybe forgot this code system um to be able to convey that without having your point of view character explicitly spell it out for you um while also keeping her in her narrative voice and and making it distinct that this is a different place. It's just so good. And it's, it's, it's so well constructed and it, it's what makes this awful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, feel like I should point out now that there were probably more than one point in twig that actually hit me this hard, but, uh, anyway. <laughs> oh, great. I can't, I can't wait to read that. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, mean, for for me, that's a huge selling point, actually, because like (laughs) how often do things make you actually feel things this way? Yeah, that's true. Um, Yeah. So back into the actual text. (laughs) Sorry. Uh, I mean, I mean, something like this you have to talk about in kind of a a loping way, right? Yeah. So, So Crystal is consistently trying to coax Victoria to stop and leave and let someone else do this. Um, Crystal seems to actually be taking these events harder than Victoria Cuff or Golem, actually, like based on the way she's behaving. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this kind of helps propel the horror to something else, too. I think Victoria is afraid to make the connection in her head. Crystal is afraid to do anything that that also connects Victoria back to that moment. Right. Like there's this like multi armed elephant hanging about right now. And these two characters are like trying as hard as they can not to mention it while also getting through this whole thing. And, and crystal I think is, is I I don't think she's taking it as hard as Victoria, but she's, she's expressing it in a very different way that Victoria is. Yeah. I mean, I think like um, Victoria has like a warrior psyche, like, like it's fair to say that Mm -hmm. crystal throughout this story, I'm thinking specifically of the broken trigger event. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, is like reacts much more the way a normal human would, would react to being thrown into the midst of horrifying events. And she does her best, which is very admirable, but she does, she doesn't have like, like she, she was like crying in that scene. She's really upset here. She's really emotional. Um, and, and it's again, like, like reasonable human reaction to horrible things, but it's just interesting to contrast, um, how different Victoria is from her cousin actually in, in this way. Yeah. And one of the crazy things about how Victoria is handling this is it carries forward into everything else. Like if you look, if you look at the meeting that we're going to talk about in a few minutes, there's very little Victoria introspection there either. Like Mm -hmm. this, this, this survival mechanism she's switched on to get through this stuff. It doesn't switch off so easily. Yeah. So, so yeah, I can't get over this chapter. So, so, <laughs> so not only is this some of the most gut-wrenching emotional material we've ever covered on the show, but Walbo also manages to seamlessly convey the rules of the system that we, you know, probably forgot or, or never entirely knew so that we understand what's being communicated and also so that certain things land extra hard. So like very quickly and seamlessly and like without even realizing we're learning it, we understand one for yes, two for no, three for maybe. And then when there's a binary choice, the eye movement signals the choice. And it's like, man, we got it. We're, we're, we're on board. And, and nowhere did the text have to like stop and explain the system to us. Yeah, I, I think one of the constant strengths of this writing is taking form and function and kind of harmonizing them in, in great new ways. And I think this is another example of that. And what's more this text like it often makes us sit with the functional like requirements of this communication i think we talked about this when we were doing when victoria was doing it and i think that we're seeing it here again in a different way we occasionally accelerate through the 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 structure of the communication because it takes a long time to express anything this way we occasionally like hit, hit fast forward and just have the text read out something but we also have moments where the story makes us hold on to it, where it doesn't let us escape from this 
methodical rote necessity of this way of communication. Like like the, when, when she says she's cold, we have to go through each and every step of this thing to to get to spell cold. And it, it's it's like. I think it, it it forces us to be there with it, but I think it also maps to Victoria's whole strategy for dealing with this thing because she's focusing on that very rote mechanical nature. She's focusing on the step by step way to get through this. Focus on these things. Don't think about the other things. And it just it works. It works functionally. It works, um, you know, artistically. It works narratively like it works in every kind of way. Yeah, yeah, I agree completely. Um, so nail fair or part of nail fair's head that has an eye attached, uh, communicates that she wants it to be cold because the cold brings numbness, which implies that numbness is required, which implies that they can feel their injuries. Yeah, it get it gets, it gets worse. It was bad. And then uh-huh. it goes worse. So they're in constant pain and existential horror. Awesome. Yep. So Victoria puts out some messages to warn the capes in her network uh, that, you know, bad shit's going down, but she withholds the details of what exactly happened because, you know, even in this situation, she's aware of how volatile the situation is. Yeah, which I think is the most fascinating part about Victoria in these chapters to me because with, with the exception of these three people that are going through this terrible thing, Victoria is probably like the most psychologically affected by this right because like this is tying exactly back to one of the most terrible times in her life but she's all about like controlling this and and being rational and logical and thinking through it like she's worried about like heroes going nuts and taking this personal and and lashing out but like that's something that is a real possibility for her to do as well, but she's just not allowing herself to go there right now. And it's just like, it's fascinating to me. Yeah. 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 I agree. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, so Victoria communicates to the doctors that nail fair wants cold. And then there's like a disagreement over whether her hand should be kept out of the cooler. The doctor wants it kept out of the cooler so she can communicate better. And Victoria is like, "Mm, she doesn't need it to be out of the cooler. And the doctor just kind of forces the issue. Yeah, it, I think what, what I, one of the things I think this is doing is kind of establishing an us versus them nature of this whole thing. Like Victoria knows what this poor woman is going through and it immediately kind of engenders Victoria to her side that like the doctor for all his good intentions doesn't understand. Nobody understands what you're going through. Nobody but but me because I've gone through something similar to this and it's like it's like it's a great way of. I'm not saying they're going to be in in specific conflict, but like she's so with her immediately and against like anyone that doesn't quite understand this, this whole thing. Right, right. She instantly slips into this role of, of being nail fairs advocate. Yeah. And, and just like what, whatever she needs to do to, to help. And, and she's like trying to like think in advance of what, what could be helpful. And, you know, uh, and like the doctor is obviously doing their job as a doctor, right? But like, yeah. But but Victoria is just like I, I'm just I'm trying to do everything I can to make them suffer less because she just like feels for them so acutely. Yeah, yeah. Um. So there's several moments here that I'm gonna read just because I have to. Okay. Um. <laughs> 
Just let me know, I said. I'm staying close. The fingers moved clumsily, not like a hand should. One finger tapped hard against the metal pan it had been laid down on. One tap equivalent for one blink. Uh, and then, a bit later, I'm going to stay, stay with Nailfarer, I said. I think we worked out our communication system pretty well. One sharp tap on the metal pan. Cuff jumped. Yeah, pretty well, I said, my heart breaking a little. Duh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's so that's it's kind of what I was getting at with like like uh, just understanding the communication method and letting us get like the one bit of information from Mailfarer is still enough to crush us. Yeah. Yeah. I don't uh, even have anything analytical to say about that yeah, other than it's, it's just Right. I'm I'm it's, feeling the feelings I felt the first time I read it and they're right. coming back. So yeah. it's uh just reminding everyone that that happened. Yeah. Uh, so then Victoria and Crystal have something between a throwdown and a mutual breakdown as Crystal pleads for her to go home and let somebody else handle this. And Victoria stubbornly insists that she's going to stay and help. Mm -hmm. And uh, Victoria, so Crystal says, you don't have to get involved with it, Victoria. I can't imagine a world where I'm not, I answered. Crystal folded her arms. I folded mine, staring her down. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, you know, Crystal means really well here. She's trying to look out for her cousin. Um there's just no like just as Victoria says, there's no way she can leave the situation like like when she was in the situation there in one of her biggest complaints is people abandoned her. People left her and, and I, she is not capable of doing that. Like she, she just she won't. And I, and I, I, I kind of love that about her. And I love how agitated they get at each other without like like this is not like a this is a conflict like they're they're fighting here, but it's like it doesn't go too far, right? Like yeah. it's still kind of controlled. The, like the thing is that, that Crystal's agitation is from a place of love and yeah. Victoria knows that. So they're not going to start screaming at each other, you know? Yeah. It's, it's, but, but, but there is, there is, it is heated at the yeah. same time. Well, and I, I love how, um, I love how the text kind of expresses the agitation, right? Because we have like crystals getting increasingly wound up. And then like at the very end of this argument, she almost blows her cover. Like she says, yeah, we were in a war zone. And then yeah. Golem, like she, Golem or Weld, like immediately gives her a look like, Whoa. Yeah. And, yeah. and it's just like, she gets really close to, to betraying some confidential information. So that's like a really good, quick illustration of how agitated she is, that she makes that slip up. Um, it, it's, it's very revealing and it's like a, a very efficient way of doing that. And I, I liked it. Yeah, yeah, me too. So this is like a complete tangent. And I just sometimes I like to let the Byron chocolate part of me out for <laughs> some fresh air. But like I could I, at some point I kind of suspected just briefly, like maybe Crystal has some other motive for wanting to pull Vicky away from this. Like she knows something about this situation and she's apprehensive about Victoria getting involved. And she she's it's like the scene of the movie where where the where the corrupt cop is like he's like you don't want anything to do with this mackenzie and <laughs> and 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 you think that it's because he's lazy but actually he want he doesn't want mackenzie to get shot by the mob um yeah um like she knows she knows who's responsible for this or something she knows who's responsible for this or or she has some insight into the situation interesting and and, and is is almost like I just don't want my cousin to get roped into this. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I, I mean, I honestly, don't really believe it. This, but it it, it popped into my head. So yeah, I, I didn't see that 
in any of this, but that doesn't mean it's not impossible that, that yeah. I mean, I, I it, to me, her her objection comes definitely from a place of I'm trying to shield you from the stuff that I know is is going to to, to destroy you or, yeah. or or lead you to a path of destruction. And um, but, you know, maybe maybe I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if we do these shows long enough, one of these days, one of the Byron's chocolate type assertions is going to be true. So look, that I, I'm just going to always make them. That was the strategy like for Scott speculations like the whole way through and it paid off. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I was only like 50 percent right. But when I was right, I went for the fences and hit a couple home runs. Yeah, it's true. So, yeah, it's just true. go for it, man. Just go right. for it. All right. So um, we also learn in this moment that there are parts of each of these people that are missing, right? So that um, whoever did this took parts of them with them so that they couldn't like put Humpty Dumpty back together again or something. Um, And and the Victoria's reaction to this is good to know complete another monsters, but it fills out the picture and Crystal's response is you couldn't sound less honest if you tried filling out the picture. Don't pretend you're objective about all this. And and Victoria like doesn't even confront her about it. She just kind of looks away and talks to someone else. Like, yeah, she's obviously not objective about this. She's obviously like there's something bubbling underneath her all. And that's kind of the scary part about the rest of this chapter is I think there's like she's closed off that part of her, but it's going to bubble over eventually. And and just like Crystal, I'm worried about her if she keeps pushing that down and not not feeling it. Yeah, it doesn't really describe Victoria's affect, right? In fact, yeah. Victoria's point of view rarely describes Victoria's affect. So we're, we're forced to imagine what it must be. And, and you kind of do imagine that she's like putting on this air of lightness here, uh, w- but not succeeding probably. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, so. And, and before we move on, like as Victoria heads into the ambulance to go with them, we have like our, our new buddy team like say goodbye to each other and there's this kind of sweet moment where vista apologizes for them always having to meet these ways and and golem like gives this like badass brockton bay squad for life like inspiring thing like we're from brockton bay we can we can take this and then we get this wonderful little beat where cuff like shakes her hand and and mentions like how much she's fucked up about this and and we get the text describes Victoria squeezing her gauntlet like in in like solidarity. And I just I just love like there's this, this this group of people just like met each other and like a lot of them didn't know anything about each other very much, except for a few of them. They're all kind of linked through some common people, but they don't know about it. And like it seems to me that this this terrible, horrible event like brought them together in some way, um, like like turned them into a group. Um, not like a team or anything, but but they they have a shared experience now. Um, and I, I hope we see more of this this group together. Yeah, right. It's, it does seem like they kind of became instantly like bonded over yeah. all this. Yeah. Um, so I haven't mentioned yet that in this chapter, Victoria is interchangeably calling her Wayfarer and Dayu, Dayu. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure what I guess Dayu. Yeah. And so Victoria is holding Dayu's hand. And the other woman grips back firmly um, as they start to drive toward the hospital. Um, Dayu asks about her team, which is um, another gut punch. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then we have this moment. A paramedic came to the back of the ambulance. He paused as he saw me. You're coming? I nodded. You know her? Getting to? The hand moved. 
I held the wrist instead of the fingers and held the hand up so the fingers wouldn't be scraping and bumping against the surface. The hand was heavier than the length of the arm it was attached to. She shook so much, with effort, with stress, and probably with emotion. One thumb partially extended, fingers drawn most of the way in. Good enough, the paramedic said. The feels, the oh feels, my, Scott. Oh my god, oh my god. And, like, the way... So this is this is emotionally devastating. And then we have as the section ends and we move on, thankfully, um, we have Victoria kind of break down for the first time. Right. Like she starts crying and she positions herself so no one can see her cry. But she uh, she loses it here. And uh, again, we still don't have any kind of introspection. She still hasn't like in her mind been consciously thinking about her time at the hospital. Like she hasn't done that, but it's still ripping her apart. Yeah, right, right. You know, it's interesting to me. It's like she her composure slips momentarily and she lets some tears out. But like, I feel like this wasn't really a a good cry either. No, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. she has not released that valve at all. Yeah, right. So we we skip some time. Uh, Not actually sure how much. I don't maybe the text tells us. I'm not sure. But Victoria returns to her apartment and steals some food from the Ashleys who are awake she kind of sort of updates them, but not really. I, w- I would say it's a, it's really, really early in the morning. Like she uh-huh. said she was going to stay all night with with the the, the guys. So yeah. I sh- it's Crystal was going to come by and relieve her in the morning. So I think it's the day of the villain meeting. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's when I think it is. Yeah. Um, You you were just going to like skip by the Ashley squared cuddle session, Matt. <laughs> You didn't put anything about it in the no, notes. And I was no, like, what's going on here? No. Uh, it, I mean, it's like it's it's not like super important, but I love <laughs> I love it. I love how it's like not like like Damsel's head is on Ashley's lap. Ashley's feet are on Damsel's lap. Like it's this very like mutually like the symbiotic like, like sleep two, posture. Yeah, two cats curled around each other. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and I like it's like they're you know, relying on each other and, and like, it's just, I don't know. It's, I like it. I like it a lot. Um, I, I like yeah. their entire interaction. Like there's this, like this sleepy damsel interaction of like sleepily talking about destroying all the people. And she's like, not, not yet. Um, yeah. I, I don't like, I don't know where we're going with these two characters yet. Like, I don't know what the, the text is going to explore with their continued, uh, growing bond and interaction, but, um, I'm into it a lot. Yeah. yeah me too. Me too. Uh, so as, as she gets her snacks together, she uses her flight in a very silly utilitarian way, uh, which I can't help but read deeply into. Yeah. And as, as we mentioned earlier, the language of, of Victoria says that flying is disconnecting. So yes, she's like, she's like floating like backstroke with, with food on her, right? Cause she can't afford to carry it. But again, like we've established this as, as being meaningful in some way. So yeah, I feel like there's a number of, of, of other possibilities like i mean so for one thing it's saying is like she's so tired that she can't just like make two trips from the kitchen to the bedroom yeah she has she's just like fuck it and 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 behaves in a way which like she she makes sure no one's looking because she knows it's ridiculous (laughs) and like it's not the kind of thing that she would normally do yeah um but she she does it um and, and then also there's like anytime she uses her flight casually it it doesn't just mean disconnection, right? Because like she's used it as, as a as a way of expressing like triumph and and almost like joy back when uh, back when they were succeeding 
and they were getting kind of headway in their in their cape organization yeah that's so true. but like there's no reason she should really be feeling joy here like for me it's really just kind of a i'm so tired i'm just gonna use flight <laughs> like yeah 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 I, I i agree with that so now she gets in touch with dragon and dragon has more info for her and we then kind of skip some time and later on there's a hero meeting uh in a sense paralleling uh the huge villain meeting that's gonna be happening shortly and we meet uh scenarial that how you say it sure uh somebody we haven't really met but i know i've read the name a few times up to this point uh victoria describes her as scary as shit <laughs> uh but but what's interesting is like she's like it's not the costume it's just the look on her face <laughs> So I kind of view her as having this permanent Judge Dredd face. That's a wonderful description. And now there's no way I don't see her in a, a Judge Dredd uniform every time I read about yeah, her anymore. So like the inverted U-shaped mouth. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Those of you uh, that can't see this, Matt is making a, a face right now. And it's wonderful. Um, th- so I, I think it's 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 like we don't know who this character is, right? But the book kind of stops briefly here to give a a pretty comprehensive description of of them um which tends to indicate that they're going to play a role in things to come that they are a character that's going to matter in some way in the future so um i'm kind of interested to see where the 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 book goes with this character this this hard-ass character that we've just met yeah yeah hard-ass but maybe with a heart of gold maybe so as Victoria updates the other heroes, we learn a bit more about what's happened in the background, what Dragon found out. Apparently, the attackers baited the navigators to the scene using a carefully crafted offer. Another different offer was extended to the magic, uh, the super magic dream parade, um, which was also crafted for, for their interests specifically. But they didn't but accept. They didn't accept because they don't use the Internet <laughs> that much. So good for them. Uh, Swan Song is the one actually who interjects to remind everyone that the heroes can't afford to respond emotionally to what is obviously intended as provocation. Um, and she says this before Victoria goes on to relay what, what actually happened to the victims. Yeah, I, I love that. I love that it's Swan Song that says this, the person who like responds to provocation very specifically, like it shows an, an elevated move for her character. But again, look how she says it like. The reason Antares is urging caution is that we can't be baited by provocation and we can't let emotions cloud our search for the personal. And Victoria says, exactly. But this is insanely personal for her. Like, we know this. Like, the text is not betraying this, but because she hasn't admitted it yet, but it is. She's holding something back right now. She's being this calm, collected professional. She's still not really being introspective here. We're still seeing much less of her internal narrative than we have at any other point in the story. But it's still there under the surface. Like, like I, I go back. I have when I read this part, I had Crystal in my mind echoing. Don't pretend you're objective about all this. Don't pretend you are. Of course, you're not. There's no way you can be. And, and you're doing it here to functionally make it through this. But what happens when that 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 breaks? Yeah, I mean, it's really, really interesting because not only is she being like. Is her position like seemingly objective, but she's like more objective than anyone else here. Yeah. Like everyone else is emotional and reactive. I mean, I, I mean yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll get to it. Right. Like so. So first of all, like it's like they're, it's like her buttons are being pushed <laughs> and she's still remaining because Lark brings up the possibility that it might be Amy behind the attack. 
and and even like first of all victoria doesn't like shut down or have like a a, a triggered reaction she's just kind of like i don't think so <laughs> yeah i mean we don't we don't see any moment in her brain where she even considers this for a moment right like there's yeah. no there's no internal narrative that says well could it be mm, mm-hmm. i don't think so. uh I mean, probably right. not, but I think she's right. like, there's that, this is nice. is not there. She's yeah. just immediately like, Mm-mm, no, yeah. she doesn't even think like wouldn't put it past her. It's just right. like, just like, no, that doesn't make sense. Right. Right. I mean, yeah. this is, this is so fundamentally different from her. Every other time Amy's been brought up, like even in the times when she was doing okay and could like say her name without going into a panic attack, there's still been this moment of like grimacing or like internal, like, yeah. it's just it's not here. She's not here. And that's it's terrifying. <laughs> yeah. Well, terrifying, but is it terrifying? I mean, see, I, I think I'm I think I'm actually reacting to this a bit differently than you. I just think it's very interesting and I'm not sure where it's going. Yeah. Um, I mean, that, maybe maybe you're exactly right, though. Yeah. I mean, I see it as I mean, I, I like I I have a hard time seeing it as a, a good thing. Not, not that like her freaking out every time her sister mentioned is objectively a good thing. But I, it, to me, it says like, I don't think she's at a emotional place where that stuff just doesn't bother her anymore. So like, if it's, if it's not hitting her, then it's being stored somewhere. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I worry, you know, when, when that storage room is full, what happens? Yeah. I mean, it's not like this event that's been happening for the last few hours has been like wonderful and healing and positive for her. Right. Of course. Right. But, but th- there have been elements of it that, that are potentially cathartic like being able to help someone who was in the, who was in the position that she was in might have been cathartic in a way. Yes, painful and and yes, bringing up all kinds of terrible things, but in a way that might have been therapeutic in some way. Like I think there's some positive and some negatives basically. Yeah, I could see that. I I, I like that interpretation. Yeah. Like you say it's worrying though that she's not like thinking about it. Mm-hmm. So anyway, t- too many of the invited hero teams are emotional and reactive. Um, it's almost as if the navigators were targeted because they're so well-loved and connected. Uh, the most Victoria gets out of them is a promise not to move on the villains for the next six hours. Yeah, yeah. And so so we have Victoria, pragmatic, rational Victoria here is, is like not being baited by any of this where yeah. everyone else is. And, and uh, like, we, I think we kind of already talked about this when we went off topic earlier <laughs> in the discussion, but we, I want to compare this meeting to Tattletales meeting because they both attend meetings in which their teams are, are hot villains and heroes pr- respectively are hot head headed. They're angry. They want decisive action. They see the writing on the wall and they want to do something about it. Tattletales response in that situation is to step back to let it happen. Uh, she, she says it's inevitable anyway, and she's tired and she just doesn't want to deal with it anymore. Victoria is not that same type of person. And, and, and she like, can't step back. She can't just let the angry horde of heroes roll over and, and take out whoever they want on the, their way to seek revenge for this thing. Um, especially since that could be exactly what they're trying to do here. Right. Um, she, she's, she's got to do something. She's got to, try to stop this from happening so she's gonna do it and that's I, I think that's like a fundamental difference between who these two people are as characters and i'm not saying one is right and one is wrong right i'm just saying that they're they're different choices made by characters when put in similar positions yeah no that definitely seems like a, a parallel i mean I, 
there's a lot of a lot of differences between these two meetings but i just feel like they are being paralleled and yeah. of course the characters reactions to basically like you said the participants of the meetings are both behaving very similarly but the reactions of the of the point of view characters are are opposed yeah and that's and that's where we end our chapter six hours till the meeting we know is going to turn into a riot with breakthrough and their closest allies on a mission to solve the case before the time runs out and yeah it's an exciting place to be i think it feels like we're moving into like the climax of the arc right like this this feels like it's gonna be the climactic conflict of the arc proper yeah i feel like you're right yeah so do you have any i mean do you have any guesses as to what's going on here um as to like who's responsible for this why is it happening because like it seems like on the surface there's a very real indication that sides are being manipulated to force them into conflict with each other and if i look at who benefits most from the heroes and the villains destroying each other it's the people trying to convince everyone that capes are are inherently destructive and are going to are are bad and should not be allowed to be in charge of everything and and trying to get them on their side. So, I mean, I don't know that, but it it seems like the anti-parahuman sentiment would most benefit from heroes and villains like going full tilt at each other. Yeah, um the thing is there's so many there's so many, you know, game pieces on the board that like it could be an elaborate, you know, Rube Goldberg machine on on teacher's part like like setting all this up to create some outcome he wants it could be Dinah being a precog and and mm-hmm. basically just like take like taking necessary steps to get what she knows is going to be the best outcome even if it results in really bad things temporarily uh it could be some other like some party that we're not really familiar with who has some other agenda that we don't know about um you know it could be uh that's the thing is it could either be a rube goldberg machine designed to like prop up the heroes prop up the villains prop up the fallen prop up teacher prop up dinah and the like like i don't know i don't know there's and that's i think that's something we've we've identified before about the reason these stories work so well is there are so many credible red herrings um as to like what could be going on that maybe i just said the true answer somewhere in there (laughs) uh maybe not if i did say it i don't deserve any credit for forecasting because the the point is that i'm just listing the possibilities that are evident right yeah i'll give you credit matt (laughs) yeah matt correctly predicted okay (laughs) all right let's wrap up with some name game sure um, I think we'll just stick to Nailfarer because we kind of focused on that character. Yeah. Uh, so apparently this is Old Norse and probably pronounced very differently than that. I'm not even going to try to say it, but it's a boat made entirely from the fingernails and toenails of the dead or possibly just made from the corpses of the dead, depending on what expert you believe, because there's some who say that like that particular word just means like corpses when used in certain contexts. Uh, and this this uh, boat is foretold, foretold to ferry hordes uh, to, you know, the underworld that will do battle with the gods, uh, I think, at the end of the world. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, and, and of course, Nailfair is uh, triggered while on a overseas passage, right, where they were being horribly cruel to them and like 
many people died while on the trip. So that that fits very thematically. Good, good way to pick your name. Nail fair. Um, mm-hmm. I, I like yeah. I like that foretold to fairy hordes that will do battle with the gods. I like that, like seeing nail fair as like the the instigating event that that brings this battle between God, like pair humans against each other. So I like yeah. I like that 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 kind of through line. Yeah, you know, it didn't really occur to me until now, but there's kind of a connection to Valkyrie, you know, as a as a Norse figure of of the underworld. Yeah, there you go. Confirmation that Valkyrie did it. It was Valkyrie. Yeah, yeah good point. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I, I was, I have no real way of connecting it, but like this all does seem like it's related to whatever it is that Valkyrie's terrified of. All right, so discussion question for this week. The world of parahumans is a dark place, and Wildbow frequently employs horrific and disturbing imagery to reinforce this fact. Discuss this approach to storytelling. Yeah, so I think we kind of wanted this one to be more open-ended, as you could probably tell by that question. We, I, I think we just want you guys to talk about, like, how, how, does, how does this enhance the things that he's trying to do? Like, how, like do, I mean, most people here obviously like it, right? Um, but there's there's a lot of people out there that get very disturbed by this kind of stuff in their media. Um, so maybe there's people that like the story but don't like that that aspect of it as much. And I want to I want people to you know explore how they feel about it and 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 its its effectiveness and its function in storytelling. Yeah, yeah, I'm looking forward to this one. Yeah, well, that's all we got for you this week on We've Got Ward. You guys are all part of this show, so feel free to provide us with advice, questions, or thoughts on this week's reading. You can reach us via email at gotwormpod at gmail.com or over on our Twitter at gotwormpod. My personal Twitter is at scottdaily85 and Matt's is at 50 little live pieces more than a mail. And if you're not already subscribed to We've Got Ward, we strongly recommend you do so and never miss an episode. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere else in the world you can listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find this and all the other podcasts we do over at doofmedia.com. Matt, we released the new episode of We've Got Weaver Dice. Episode 5 came out Sunday night. It is out there. It exists. We did it. Right on schedule. Yep, exactly. That was the plan the whole time. So if you Uh haven't gone and listened to that yet, if you haven't listened to our Weaver Days campaign at all yet, check it out. Um, I'm really, really enjoying doing it. Um, We obviously took a very long hiatus between the fourth and fifth episode, but I think we're trying to get back onto a semi-regular schedule with that. So um, re-listening to the episode kind of reminded me of how much fun I have doing that. Um, So it's I think it's really inspired all of us to, to make it a priority again. So. Yeah, ditto as the as the DM. Um, yeah, so if you like any of uh, our shows and you want to support them, consider donating to our Patreon account, patreon.com slash doofmedia. You can do- donate a dollar a month or whatever else you can afford. Supporting us on Patreon gives you tons of great bonuses like voting in our quarterly fan art costume or, um, yeah, fan art or costume contests, Q&A sessions, access to live streams of our recording sessions like this one, and our excellent Discord chat. And of course, special thanks to new Bidoofs, uh, Catlin at the $1 level, Nicholas G at the $1.50 level, and Sean at the $1 level. Uh, new Doof Troop member, Jeremy, at the $1, le- uh, sorry, sorry, at the $10 level, thank you. And Doof Warrior Prof upgraded to the $20 level. Yeah, Prof upgraded 20 so he can make us watch anime. <laughs> Yay. Thanks, Prof. <laughs> 
Yeah, as always, <laughs> no, we really appreciate se- it. Yeah, seriously, yeah. thanks guys so much. It, it means a lot to us. Matt, we are $25 away from our next patron goal, which is the launch- launching of Doof Plays, because we didn't have enough to do already. We're going to do more stuff. I love it. Um, yeah. This is our attempt to kind of explore the world of streaming of video games. We've got a lot of um, fun ideas that uh, that hopefully will kind of differentiate ourselves from, you know, just normal average game streaming. Not that those people don't do great work. I have I have respect for people that can be entertaining and play video games for hours, but we kind of want to put a, a doof spin on it. So we've got a bun- bunch of great ideas about that. And we're so close to that goal. So uh, if you want to donate, it's a, it's a great time to do it. Yeah. And as always, uh, while you're over on Patreon, make sure you go over to Wildbo's page, patreon.com slash Wildbo, and donate to him as well. This is his world. We're just collecting giblets in it. Oh, Jesus. If you can't afford to donate right now, that is absolutely okay. You can instead help us out by heading on over to Apple Podcasts and leaving us a rating and a review. We have no new reviews to read this week, but keep them coming. They really do help us get exposure. And Matt really, really likes exposing himself. Uh, all right <laughs> that's it that's all for us this week next week uh, more polarize Matt I feel like something really bad is gonna happen soon I mean like more bad than three people being chopped up into little bits and then forced to continue to live as they feel the pain of all the individual little bits worse than that yeah yeah I do well guess we'll find out next week on We've Got Ward we've got Ward